Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio. I'm your host, Severin, and this is yet another episode exploring the lives and aspirations, struggles, and tactics of the Young Farmers Movement. And today, I'm happy to be joined by Lisa Murgatroyd, who sounds like she's a hero in a science fiction novel. And in fact, she is because she is a farmer in the Bay Area. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you, Severin. Hello, fellow Greenhorns. <laughs> Hello, hello. Um, let's jump right into where are you farming and how did you get there? All right. My husband and I, Jesse Pizzatola, we are farming in the North Bay in California and uh, in Petaluma, which is about an hour, hour and a half north of San Francisco in Sonoma County. And we are farming about 20 acres that we rent on two different properties, one where we do a lot of dry farming um, we're doing uh, CSA, Farmer's Market. Uh, we do a lot of wholesale, grocery stores in the Bay Area, some restaurants, and a farm store, too. And uh, how we got so, there, well, that is... So a you have a lot going stuff. on. You're, you're sitting on the edge of one of the most um, hungry, hungry for vegetable marketplaces in the whole continent. Um, and how did you, how did you get where you are and what was your your personal path and what was your kind of land story? I see. Okay. Well, my personal path was um, I started out uh, working in the national parks and the national forests when I was quite young in high school. Um, and I just, I was from Chicago, actually, and I just, I fell in love with working in the natural world. And um, I started to get really interested in what was happening with, um, in regard to the environment and um, politics and um, natural resources, just kind of out of that conservationist uh, mentality. And then um, went off to college in the late nine, real late 90s, right about the time that all of the stuff with uh, the WTO protests in 99 were happening. And, the IMF and people were getting more conscious around what was happening with um, social justice and um, environment and how the two were related around um, global finance. And I was getting really interested in that and looking at, you know, kind of what are, just academically, what are the intersections um, around how we treat each other and the natural world and how does that show up in our communities locally and globally. Um, so from an, from an uh, intellectual perspective, I, I was getting interested in this kind of work. And then I realized that food and um, growing food really were um, foundational on those issues. And um, I took a community agriculture course and um, joined the CSA and started reading a lot of, you know, Wendell Berry and Michael Pollan and um, Vandana Shiva 
and became really inspired and kind of transferred my love of working in the natural world um, from a conservationist perspective more to uh, participating in, in growing and, and nurturing um, the natural world through agriculture. And I became really interested in in how do we, this question of how do we, um, how do we, build the world together and build the, the structures, whether it's industry or, or providing for ourselves through food or communities in ways that uh, really embody our values. And, you know, agriculture and food is so fundamental to all those things that I, I wanted to start there. Um, and so then I, I actually went back home to the Midwest, and uh, my grandmother was pretty sick with uh, – Parkinson's, and so I wanted to help care for her, and I also, um, I found Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, which is a biodynamic farming institute um, right outside Milwaukee, and I, I started working there in their garden student program with Janet Gamble, um, and that was a little bit, that was right when a lot of the farming, the sustainable ag programs are just getting started around the country in, um, in the universities. It seemed like it was one of the only ones that was um, that I had heard of, and um, and also worked on a biodynamic dairy there, and that's kind of where I, I, I did my I cut my teeth a little bit in learning the basics around um, agriculture. And let's see, to make a long Wait a minute, story I, short, we, my we husband and I ended up in, in Washington on Lopez Island after we spent about. Um, he was my boyfriend then, but and from college, and then we spent um, about four months traveling the country looking at, right when we graduated, um, looking at models of agriculture that both balance production and education, um, a lot of them rooted in the biodynamic model. So, because um, that's what we were really interested in, building a farm that did that, um, and we heard all the farmers again and again say, don't do this unless you have to. It's really hard. Um, but, you know, we couldn't stay away because it was where our heart was. And um, we spent some time up in Lopez Island, Washington, which is a really small community in the San Juans up there, um, and started our first agricultural business. So we started a CSA up there um, in collaboration with the Land Trust as well as um, this public school district and launched a farm-to-school program there with the community. And from there, we had several, several incarnations of different um, farming and food systems um, work that we did. My husband primarily just in farming and me also in the nonprofit world until we came back to Sonoma County about five years ago, where he's from, and um, bought into First Light Farm which is where we, uh, the farm that we now operate. So you really have run through the whole gamut of um, Greenhorn-type circus rings through NGOs, through the Park Service, through anti-globalization politics, through children's gardening, through so much high-credential teaching programs. You're like a model citizen in terms of pollinating between so many of the different parts of the sustainable ag pathway. Um, tell me what you have learned from that and what you're kind of learning right now um, 
about what's possible in the Bay Area and, and kind of where the routes forward look to be for the next generation of young farmers? Wow. Well, that is a big question. Let me see. It's um, a good question. You know, what is the kind of the culmination of of all my you can, you, you um, curious can string together some small <laughs> insights. You can string yeah. together. So let's don't, see. Don't worry. Well, I think it's just speaking to where I am right now, um, you know, I've always been a person who's really into systems and how they connect and, you know, kind of a person who works at the intersection of, of different um, different types of groups and looking at this question of how do we how do we build new new realities that work work for ourselves and our communities and um, so I mean I guess what I see in the North Bay and I'm certainly not an expert in any of you know on what's happening around the housing that you know I, I don't know if that news is getting to the East Coast or not but or around other issues related to agriculture, but just from my vantage of, of being part of this community here, um, I do see that um, one challenge right now that a lot of the, that, that is, is very prevalent just for the working class community here is affordable housing and, you know, the ability to build, uh, ability to build equity through housing. And then, of course, that, so that, that kind of affects all of the working class folks. But then additionally for this kind of new um, generation of people in food systems, businesses, and, and farming who are, you know, have educated themselves around it and are launching themselves as entrepreneurs or getting trained, um, as well as, as farm workers. Um, and there's a lot of crossover there between those, those different um, groups. But, you know, looking at this question of um, how do we create an environment here in the North Bay that that um, you know, we have this great market. Everybody wants local food. There, you know, you can grow everything. You can sell everything you can grow. But how do we create an environment where it's affordable for these folks, including us, to live and to build equity? Um, you know, and of course, as farmers, you're also most people are interested in being able to stay on the land that they're um, that they're investing in, and um, you know, and ideally be able to live there too. And you know, it's just it's a so that's a big challenge, and our community is, is looking at that in a lot of different ways, and folks are getting organized around it as well. And uh, the Farmers Guild, actually, they, they did a, um, of which I'm a part, they did a survey just in the past few months, and affordable housing came out as the number one concern for, um, for members, as well as, um, you know, wanting um, the Guild to work on advocacy and, and help with that issue because we have a in Petaluma, which is where we farm, um, which has traditionally been a um, kind of the egg and, and milk and butter capital of you know of this area in the past. It has this great agricultural history, and, and local food is so celebrated. It's you know we it's been we've seen rents pretty much double in the past four years or so, and um, just prices skyrocket and. Um, there's like a 1% vacancy rate, and the schools are losing a lot of kids to, um, and, and, and a lot of families. So, so we're trying to look at that issue and, and, and say, okay, how do we address this as a, as a farming community who, want, who wants to continue to stay in our community and, and be able to, you know, support our families and 
feed people here. Um, but there don't seem to be any easy answers right now. <laughs> so that's one challenge we're facing. Um, as far as insights on what I've learned, well, hmm. I mean, I do think that I think about this ecosystem of, of advocacy and activism that, you know, whether you're working on large-scale policy change, you know, globally, or you're working with a, a community, um, your community, uh, building a new business or a, a new program, it's like we need a whole ecosystem of people working where they feel called to and where they have skills, you know. And even on this housing issue, like, we need short-term solutions that stop people from leaving, and then we need long-term solutions that actually create structures and support systems that are going to um, help us create a future that we want in our community. That you know, so it's just it doesn't continue to become just a playground for the rich, but actually a place where you know um, where everyone can thrive that lives here. So the last. Two episodes of Greenhorns Radio have been um, interviews with Fisher people and Fisher people's advocates because um, I just went up to Alaska and gave some talks about the experience within the Young Farmers Movement for the Fisher Fisher communities where they also are struggling with the gray, what they call the graying of the fleet of um, you, you know same thing in farming is older. Older operators, more consolidation, more foreign ownership, um, a skyrocketing price of um, the right to fish, which is kind of similar to the right to you know to farmland. And one of the things that the community fisheries community talks about a lot is um, fleet diversity, meaning they want to have small scale, medium scale, and large scale operators all able to fish in the same waters. And I think that that is echoed a lot on the land when you're talking about, you know, being able to afford to live in a community that can afford to buy the food that you're growing. That kind of um, the the question of how do how do we how do we frame that issue because it seems so obvious to be really relevant. And I know that this is a this is an issue that the affordable housing community has been dealing with, you know, across the country in especially affluent areas where those who serve the affluent areas um, and globally, you know, those who serve the affluent areas are sometimes coming in from different cultures um, for domestic workers, for garden, for gardening, for all sorts of service work. Um, obviously in the North Bay, for those of you who haven't made the connection, this is the holiday home area for San Francisco. And as San Francisco becomes ever more full of uh, tech, tech millionaires and, and tech millions are being made, um, that's just pushing the, it's just inflating the price of everything, everything including land and including nice land, farmable land. Um, are, there other, are there some other factors that um, people should know about who are trying to deal with this issue? And then maybe we can, after we talk a little bit more about the problem, talk about your tactics. Uh, for cooperative marketing for your flowers and maybe how um, that is a structure that can be useful for other people to know about. Yeah, sure, Severin. So, um, like I said, I'm not an expert, but, you know, I have been 
nosing around in how how can you know looking at who's already working on this and and you know what are what are people already doing and you know looking and starting to get involved um, as well as a lot of my neighbors who aren't farmers and um, you know and and actually just last week there was about fifty of us who got together from the farmers guild mostly younger farmers to actually look at just this issue of affordable housing like what are we gonna what are we gonna do about it for for and um, just you know over a potluck um, in Sonoma Valley. And um, so, wait a minute, pause. We should just make sure to give a public service announcement for Farmers Guild in this moment. Yes. Farmers Guild is amazing. And so it's this uh, group of us, I mean, mostly now just on the West Coast, but now we have guilds all over northern um, and central California. We just start out with this basketball one. But um, Farmers Guild is um it's folks in the food movement and, and farmers who are who are looking to um, support each other, and um, we, a lot of cross pollination of ideas happens, and there's edu- a lot of um, education that happens. We do entrepreneurial intensives and guild raisings, and um, we have potlucks every month, and with often with um, folks who come in to help help uh, let us know about new resources for. Young, um, young and newer farmers in the sustainable ag movement. Um, so it's it's growing and it's exciting. Um, and you know, I've been watching what you guys have been doing on the East Coast for a long time, and um, was really excited when the guild got going out here. And um, so <laughs> we're uh, building a the 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 movements across the country are, are con- converging. It's pretty exciting. Um, yes. Yeah, so back to your I question. I wish there were. I wish there were young farmers organizations, you know, in every state, and that we had. I wish there was twenty more people <laughs> doing doing this kind of coordinating. At least twenty, more, maybe more like fifty. Anyway, so back to what you got to talk about affordable housing at the Guild potluck. Oh yeah. So um, I mean, there's a, and and let me know if I'm off base from your question here, but. Um, there's a lot of different ways that people are, are trying to deal with this. I mean, the North Bay Organizing Project does such incredible work, and they've been organizing a, ra- a lot around affordable housing and looking at issues of, um, you know, rent control and what, what else can we can we do, um, especially in, in Healdsburg and um, Santa Rosa, which is a little bit north of us. Um, and you know, there's folks talking about, you know, how do how do we make a, just kind of as a short-term solution, tiny houses more or long-term, um, more of a possibility, you know, within the zoning and the codes here. Um, you know, and I, I think uh, there's people are teaching, starting to teach classes on that and look at, you know, how do we, how do we work creatively with the zoning um, to allow more people on the land? Um, and we have some um, wonderful but also unique um, uh, land preservation here with community separators, and, and so they've, our communities have been really successful in preserving um, open space um, in the North Bay, and, um, and and there's you know urban growth boundaries that, and we also have um, this issue of not enough housing, and I know some of that also is to do with um, in addition to tech, you know there's the the vineyard, uh, the wine industry is booming, and we have a lot of Airbnbs that are also 
influencing the rental market. But, you know, we have, in our town, we have 1% vacancy, which is pretty, um, it's almost zero. Um, and so there's a lot of factors. It's complex. And, and the county's actually, like, uh, looking at doing a, a pilot of tiny houses and having folks live there for um, a few years and studying them. Um, to kind of, our, our county is definitely, the leadership is, is investigating this, but and then at the same time, it it seems as a stakeholder, it's like okay, well, people are leaving now. You know, my friends are leaving, and we're um, we're trying to look at how do we do this as as um, young farmers, and you know, talking to the land trust, starting to talk to the land trust, and and just see what's possible. Um, you know, as in terms of thinking about outside of the box. Um, being creative and in a way it's a problem but it's also in a way I think about it as kind of the next step of the food movement in the sense that like okay all these people are going into sustainable ag and growing food in these communities where um, people are willing to pay for it or can pay for it and that's amazing right and so that's a success and then what's the next step? Well, one of the next steps, I think, is, you know, more at a systemic level, how do we think about helping and creating systems where these, these newer farmers can, um, can build equity and, and create a more st- a stable, um, long-term in- environment for them. Totally. So we come in wanting to reform agriculture as the foundation of our economy and the whatever the interface between humanity and ecology and a very logical place to start with a reform agenda. And then why are we surprised that we run into profitability issues and tenure issues and affordability issues and every other issue is connected? Um, One of the things that occurs to me as you're talking about, like, the crisis layer as well as the kind of building structures and, you know, potentially land use constraints and different zonings, like other countries have used zoning for, you know, this is only for agricultural, it can't be a vineyard or it can't be, um, you know, there's there are other countries that are not saying that every place can be a vineyard or a recreational or um, holiday, you know, um, there's the constraints, but one thing that occurs to me is looking, at, you know, obviously across cultures, but also back in history to the time of the farm crisis, when a whole generation of farm advocates were born who were responding to record foreclosures, um, people going belly up because of skyrocketing uh, interest rates after the price of land went high like it is now, and interest rates were low as they are now. And lots of farmers borrowed and bought equipment and expanded. Other farmers lost. It was a get big and go out episode of American history. And, you know, it also meant that there was a loss. Um, I think it was about a third of, um, within a decade or a decade and a half, about a third of, of farms in the United States went out of business, which is a tremendous contraction. Uh, and, and, and But it gave birth to this whole generation of farms advocates and farm crisis kind of first responders who then many of them, you know, stayed around and have been around now for 30 years. You know, I was born, I'm 34, I'm 33, 
that farm prices in the 80s, yeah, so that's 30 years, and who have been kind of like the knowledge keepers and, mm-hmm. you know, understand the USDA programs, understand the kind of USDA prejudices, understand the way things work and have a set of tactical and practical perspectives, um, which many of us, like, I mean, I'm saying us, like you and me and our generation of farm people, you know, we have been really focused on opportunism and young farmers and education and children and marketplace development and cooperation and, you know, regulations for small farm meat stuff. But we haven't been having this, like, we haven't, we don't have experience. We're just learning. We're, as you say, poking around. I'm actually poking okra, I'm actually poking seeds into a tray right now, but... Um, you know what, I think it's an important moment for us, for our generation to be in a conversation, a dialogue with our elders from that previous farm movement to learn from them, not only, you know, what did they do in a crisis and how did they like organize the telephone chain and, you know, how did they figure out how to get people on sofas of other people and, you know, learn from crisis situations and borderland issues and, uh, but, but also, how did they, what's their analysis of how we build the political power to shift the systems um, as they were, you know, able to do? And, they, you know, they created SARE. Um, they, they created um, a lot of organic programs that we now benefit from. And that's just kind of an open invitation to all of us, I think, and also to the elders to say, you know, you guys are getting gray hairs, and we want to learn from you, and can we write some grants to spend time learning from, you know, learn together. And not that we're necessarily, you know, definitely going to do it exactly the way that you tell us to, but I do think um, a dialogue could be really, a really purposeful passing of that knowledge. Okay, the end of public service announcement for an important, <laughs> important project. Um, I agree with you about completely, the, that knowledge transfer is say really... It, sorry, say it again. I, th- I agree with you completely. I think that knowledge transfer is so important. Um, you know, and I, I know that that's happening in an individualized way, you know, in much in the way that my understanding of how, you know, people have been trained in sustainable agriculture for the last 30 years, you know, as apprentices and, mentor, you know, having these beloved mentors that they've learned from. But, you know, in a more, um, yeah, I'm interested in researching and, and learning more about how that's, that's happening in a more collective way. Or, or if it needs to happen, how, like how we can do it, let's do that, right? Like I was just thinking about live power and Gloria and Stephen Decatur and um, Covalo um, in California, um, you know, some of the most revered and well-known biodynamic farmers in the country. And they, you know, they had a, a different situation than us, but, you know, they wanted to figure out how to build equity as well or, and, and have um, have um, tenure on their land. And, you know, with a, a long 100-year lease and working with Equity Trust, they were able to help develop that model, which I understand is still pretty rare, the long-term, you know, 100-year lease in the Community Land Trust. But it's something that I often think about, wow, if we could popularize that, if we could figure out how to make that uh, replicable and scalable, I mean, that, that would be amazing, right? Um, you know, it's like, sure, we need the county and the cities to support sustainable, the future of sustainable agriculture in their 20-year plan, but what, what can we do now that can kind of tweak what's happening in the system that can create an opportunity for innovation that, that 
we ourselves can, you know, as people in the food movement can then um, can make happen and, 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 and help, you know, spread, spread, spread a model that, that works in that way. Um, and, you know, I certainly welcome any stories of people who have ideas about, um, about how to do that. I mean, I think that's kind of the conversations that are happening in the North Bay right now. They feel very creative because people are like, well, we could try this or, you know, maybe we can get the uh, – one farmer was talking about um, Seth from Openfield Farm, who's a dear friend of ours. Um, and a, and a, him and his wife are, have a um, free choice CSA there in Petaluma, talking about you know maybe we'll how can potentially we get um, look at this idea that dairy farms are zoned to have more housing than other types of farming. And there's a lot of old dairy farms in our area, so can we look at maybe figuring out if there's a way to, to tweak the um, the zoning or the so that um, that these other types of farms that also need year-round um, workers can can also put more housing on the land. So we're we're um, well, we're trying so to innovate. just to go again into the international and into the historical. I mean, a lot of the farm employee housing rules, which are still on the books in California, were basically reactions to a typhoid outbreak of farm workers um, pre in the in the Bracero days and also in the Dust Bowl days when farm workers were, you know, migrant, migrant workers, um, which our state is still really dependent on, were coming in um, across the dust, dusty deserts and over into the paradise of California to pick fruit and, and, and lettuce and everything, and, and were living in squalid camps with no running water and no sanitation, and there were typhoid outbreaks, and that was when the rules around um, employee housing on farms made it so that there would be essentially labor camps on farms and regulated the rules about rent and that, you know, it had to have running water and it had to meet health and safety standards. Um, and a lot of the investigation that's going on around tiny house regulation and, you know, additional housing on farms is, is basically using that, that existing legal language from that particular episode. Similarly, in England, there's a whole movement um, that's grown out of a group called The Land is Ours, which are focused on low impact, um, similar to a tiny house in that way. They're into ecology. Um, and the land, of Al- the land is Ours basically helps people with zoning permission, where in England they have very strict zoning, zoning rules and town planning, but helping farmers who are you know, tending to animals or milking cows or making charcoal um, exploit these exemptions. The charcoal example is a specific exemption that's on the books, and so is animals, because if you're pursuing these activities, then you need to be right there on the land that you're tending in an agrarian kind of a way. And so this group in England has been focused on helping establish the rules and the precedents, and then also just transactionally supporting those who are um, building these low-impact ecological, you know, adobe and straw bale and um, more kind of yurt-type stuff, and also waddle and daub, and all their English traditional uh, building techniques. Um, so you can check that out if you're interested. Excellent. You know. 
um, one of the things that we're doing with Agrarian Trust is exactly what you kind of alluded to, is noticing what is happening and the spontaneity and creativity and and kind of like we're just going to try and do something about this, which is, you know, such a natural part of farming in general and of new economies in general, and really documenting around the country all of the kind of trials and tribulations and pathways and approaches to innovative land transfer and innovative land tenure, and just with the hope of expanding the palette of possibilities for land seekers and landowners and farm operators who have heirs and heirs who are no longer wanting to be farm operators and all of the stakeholders who are involved in, you know, these critical decisions that affect more than 40% of our terrestrial um, ecosystems, which is farming in America. And I think um, in the same way that the CSA was this weird, um, you know, weird program that people were doing in Germany and Japan 30 years ago, and there were only a very few number of farms in the U.S., now we have more than 8,000 CSAs in the country, and it's, you know, acknowledged by everyone that this is one of the most powerful tactics for new entrants. Um, to have community mm-hmm. community support in their farm. So anyway, I, this is a, this is I, I could go on and on, and I'm, that would not be the point of our radio show. So I will stop. But I have given a number of talks on this topic, and um, at the Slow Money, and at the Bioneers, and at the Public Interest Law Conference um, about agrarian trust. So if you're interested in knowing more about that, let me know. Talk about the North Bay Flower Collective. Oh, the North Bay Flower Collective just makes my heart start pitter-pattering. So, very exciting. Um, well, when the North Bay Flower Collective, I guess, I mean, I really think it was only about a year and a half ago, maybe two years. This just all happened so fast. Um, a group of us um, who kind of just got together started hearing about each other that we were doing growing flowers um, in the North Bay uh, with, you know, ecological practices um, at a smaller scale. Um, we started getting together, and there weren't very many of us that we, we knew of. Um, maybe there were like eight of us at the first, first or second dinner, and we started having these monthly potlucks. And in the beginning, it was we were all growers. And, you know, we were starting to do, some folks had flower CSAs, and a lot of us were doing weddings because here we're also, um, we're in wine country, and people come from all over the world to get married here or nearby in Napa um, County, which is next door. Um, and so, um, and, and doing for, folks are doing farmer's markets too, but, you know, as with, with weddings and with the, the floral industry, it's, um, you know, it's so, there's so many different, it's wonderful to have so many different types of flowers for events, and a lot of times, um, you know, brides are interested in specific colors or types or, um, you know, so there's this, um, there's this event Let's, market. You don't have to say it, I'll say it. Brides are picky and challenging to deal with. <laughs> but it's also a wonderful way to get started in, the, in, in flowers because there is, you can grow at a really small scale and really focus on, you know, your practices and, 
and and it's it's um there is a, a good return in it um you know because we we experimented with you know if you're if you're growing at small scale you can do you know quite a few weddings uh, you know with less than half an acre and you know so anyways we started getting together you know mostly to talk about growing practices and being able to buy from each other for events cuz the the growing season for flowers is pretty short here and you know um just wanting to know who had what types of flowers when you might easily need 30 different varieties for um for a wedding um and so then we started to attract, we didn't advertise or anything, but we started to attract all of these designers who are also really interested in um, supporting local, local flowers. And, all, and right now, pretty much one of the only choices for all these designers is to go to the San Francisco Floral Mart every week. And so that's a big haul. And it's also, you know, most of, almost all of the flowers there are flown in, and a lot of them are grown with, I mean, as we, we know about the floral industry, a lot of really toxic chemicals and also with not great practices for the workers is, you know, my understanding. And so there are a lot of uh, designers that, you know, weren't, were wanting to support something different. And then additionally, um, looked at the, so we looked at the possibility of, okay, how can we, you know, in addition to, to helping each other as farmers, how can we build something, something that also, um, a new market for flowers here in the North Bay where there's all these wonderful designers. And so um, this, is, this effort's kind of been spearheaded by uh, Nicole Skolansky and uh, Hedda um, from uh, Full Bloom Farm and, in Grayton. And then so, so uh, Nicole started, um, got us all organized, and we started using this... Um, this web platform called Fresher, where we'd put, you know, the different varieties that we had each week out, and we up and um, the colors, and um, we've been piloting this year a floral mart, a pop-up floral mart each week. And um, I've been involved some on the steering committee, and not as much with the um, the mart itself, but I've been getting all the updates, and um, it's been really exciting looking at, okay, you know, how do we... So we're experimenting, and it's, you know, it's kind of this whole thing we're prototyping, you know, and um, seeing what works and iterating. And, um, and, and also the most wonderful thing is that the collective has this really creative and supportive spirit, um, and that's really foundation. We've decided as a group that it's very that that is the foundation of everything, you know, that is going to come out of this group, and that's, um, you know, in our mission and our uh, the recently we've developed some, or that the steering committee has developed some, um, uh, I guess criteria for membership, and really it, it's all out of that paradigm of how do we how do we cooperate and um and it's it's very you know it's this it's mostly women there's only one gentleman and i bet there's about there's about 40 of us now in the group and it is just the most creative um group i've ever been a part of and uh it's pretty exciting so we just did a a, a flower festival this fall um, that was a day long where we invited the public and um, did teaching events about seed saving and 
dyeing um, with flowers, uh, dyeing fabrics, and, you know, making all kinds of, you know, bouquets and handhelds and wreaths. And it was, and um, yeah, the girls just had a blast. But, um, yeah, so, so there's a lot of momentum building around the whole fa- uh, farmer florist movement and the whole, um, you know, 50-mile bouquet and, and, and it's kind of, I, I guess, it's been coined the slow flowers movement. It's really alive here. And I think a, a big part of that, too, is that we have such a big event market here. It's like, you know, there could be 100 more people doing this, and it, it, the market is... It's it's just there's lots of room to grow. So it's funny, uh, you're, you're ta- with your spirit, you're talking like a Granger, and um, and similarly to the Grangers who were getting organized uh, when the railroad was coming in, it's like the tourism is coming in and it's pushing a price up of stuff, but it's also um, you know a, a, a potential profit profit source. So it's like how to define the terms of how this moves forward and how to articulate um, our common, our common the, the places where there's a common wealth to be found. Certainly. It's definitely, you know, I, ironic in a way. And, and, you know, I think we knew that moving here. We came here probably about, I don't know, five or six years ago. But we knew that the challenge here, that there would be a wonderful market, and the challenge here, even back then when the, there wasn't a housing crisis, you know, this is after the whole fallout of the market and and everything, but knowing that, that equity building and um, that, that would be a challenge. We'd have to do it more piecemeal than maybe, you know, some a younger person maybe in the Midwest who it would, it would, the prices would be more affordable. So... Um, you know, with a farming income, that might be an assumption, <laughs> but um, yeah. So it it, it is. It's a kind of there's. It's dynamic, and um, it's what the things that are, are wonderful uh, about this place. You know, being in agriculture are also they have a they have a, a, a shadow side too. That um, that is a challenge. It's a big challenge right now for our community. Well, it sounds like you're really up to the challenge, and um, also we're running out of time. So I'm going to just make a couple of announcements, and if you have any guild announcements um, while I'm talking, think about it, and then you'll get a chance for announcements. Um, in Greenhorn's world, we are looking down at our almanac uh, deadlines, which are coming up. And for those of you who don't know, Greenhorn's publishes now. Um, this will be our third uh, New Farmer's Almanac. You heard of the Old Farmer's Almanac, which was actually the profit source for Benjamin Franklin. He um, did a lot of scientific experiments um, using the revenue that he got from running an almanac and embedding into that almanac a lot of his political theories around American independence. And so we, as New Farmers, have taken the Old Farmer's Almanac and have turned it into kind of a miscellany or, I would say, um, literary, Young Farmers Literary Journal. And we talk, cover all sorts of topics and have illustrations and essays and little history research projects. And um, anyone who's a listener and who's a farmer or who wants to be a farmer or who um, is engaged in agrarian thinking, please do get in touch. Um, 
you can write directly to Charlie and me at almanac at thegreenhorns.net or .org. They both work. And, um, and that way you will be um, getting more information, and there's a listserv of contributors, past and present. Uh, last year we had, uh, I think, 108 contributors. So in order to publish again, we have to get back up to convince another 108 of you to uh, take out your pen this winter and uh, plug in your power cord and get typing. Um, I think that I don't want to go much longer, so I'm going to let you do your announcements for Farm Guild, Farmers Guild. Well, thank you. Um, that sounds really, the almanac sounds really exciting. I'll have to think with my people about that if we can contribute. And um, Please, please. <laughs> and, um, yeah, if you want to check out uh, anything that I was sharing about today on the web, um, my husband and I's farm is uh, First Light Farm, First Light Farm CSA. There's also a First Light Farm in Massachusetts. So, um, so you know, there's two of us, but we're the one in California. And um, also the North Bay Flower Collective, we have got a website, and um, we're on Instagram and Facebook with our farm as well. And then um, the Guild, yes, please check us out on the web and um, invite you to also, we have a Farmers Guild uh, group with, I think, over 1,000 members on Facebook, uh, where there's a lot of lively discussion, so you can check that out if you want to see what's going on. And we're also um, doing a fundraising campaign right now to kind of secure the future of the Guild. So um, if you want to support um, young farmers, please please check out our campaign. Thanks so much, Severin. This was so fun. Thank you so much. I really hope you do write, and I hope that we can continue to collaborate. It was so fun to see you and talk, and I am so happy, and high five. High five through the, through the interwebs. Through the interwebs, and high five to all of you. I hope that you're standing in the sun when it's cold and in the shade when it's hot, and I send you a big high five, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>